Hello and welcome to Shattered Lives, the Irish Daily Star's crime podcast. I'm crime correspondent Michael O'Toole and joining me today to discuss another packed week in Irish crime is our chief reporter Paul Healy. Hello Paul. Hello Mick. How are you? I'm wrecked. Um, I'm a man in my 30s but I feel like a man in my 80s this week but it has been a a busy busy week um, down at the AGSI conference in Salt Hill Uh, and as you know yourself Mick you've you've put in the time at them uh, they're exhausting but rewarding weeks uh, at, at these conferences. Yes, so this is the Association of Garda Sergeants and Inspectors. The way we describe them is they are the, the sort of junior commanders or the middle ranking officers within in Garda Shikana. The largest representative body in the Guards is the Garda Representative Association. That Their annual conference is always after Easter and the AGSA conference is always before Easter. So I was supposed to go to the AGSI conference, but I had a, a family thing on in England this week. So Paul went, so he's going to be doing the GRA as well, the lucky man. Now, it is fair to say that, you know, AGSI might be interpreted or seen as being a wee bit more dry than the GRA conference. I love the GRA conference because they're all rank and fine lads and they're more than happy to storm the barricades, whereas uh, AGSI are a wee bit more conservative, shall we say. Oh, they are. That doesn't mean they don't know how to have a good time. Um, I look, you know, it's it's a tough, long two days of of, of motions and and you know discussing amongst the, their two thousand members um, many issues which concern them uh, as a force. That that is the two thousand members of uh, sergeants and inspectors across the country, um, and the big big issue this year, which has been ongoing for many months now, which is the issue of rosters. And it's a highly contentious issue within the guards, and it is one um, that they unfortunately feel they're not getting any engagement from at the top level of management from the Garda Commissioner himself. And uh, Commissioner Harris has decided that he would like to take this dispute to the Workplace Relations Commission, and that is where he has left it. And what's interesting about this conference is that the Garda Commissioner attends every year uh, no, I think there was a year, but was it last year? Last year, the commissioner did not attend. So this is the first time the commissioner has been before the conference um, since kind of this dispute has erupted over rosters. Um, so I don't propose to go on about this for too long, but just to effectively uh, sum up uh, things for our listeners, there the roster system, the Garda roster system over the course of the pandemic was quite favorable of four days and four off. And uh, many of the members feel that that was a very fair system and one in which they have been financially better off and they have a lot more time with their families. But now this emergency roster, it's being threatened to uh, effectively, it's over now, the emergency, the pandemic is over. And there's a fear that they're going to go back to uh, the original system, which is much more chaotic in nature. uh, And they feel that, that effectively that that is an untenable position. And they think that the way that it's currently working, uh, perhaps is a roadmap for the way forward. Um, But unfortunately, this has escalated into a dispute with the Garda Commissioner. There were 64 meetings between AGSI and the Garda Commissioner and senior management in relation to this. And they haven't been able to come to a solution. So now the Commissioner has decided he's done with talking. And he was very clear about that when he came down to the conference. He's done talking about this issue and he's taking it to the WRC. Now, in fairness, to the commissioner, he spent a good bit of time with the media in, in, in a wide-ranging uh, press conference uh, where he was challenged quite considerably on this issue. But he effectively said he's not returning, he's done talking. He did obviously address the conference, um, but the mood was very, very low 
among members. Um, and I have to say, it, 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 brave of them to face uh, so many 150 um, quite angered delegates. Uh, but that is, that is his job. He has to face them. And, and from his position, he feels that taking it to the WRC is the next step. So this is this is escalated into quite a serious row and one that's even uh, gone into a high court action as well, I believe. So it's a highly, highly contentious issue. Other issues were discussed at the conference in relation to um, everything, everything and anything from their hours to even beanie hats. There was a motion in relation to uh, can they be can members be allowed to wear beanie hats when they're standing out in the cold? So they really do discuss everything and anything at these conferences. Let's just, I know we're not going to get too forensic in this, but just there's a couple of things about the roster that I think are important that members who talk to me do think are really, really important. Say, for example, I think it's on the previous, one of the reasons why the roster was brought in, it was to have more members on the beat and out during the the, 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 the crisis of the pandemic. So it went, there used to be five units, it went down to four, unit, four units and it was, and there were tw- mostly 12-hour shifts. So you had a, a much greater number of guardy out and about when they were needed, really in the, in the emergency. But what lads told me that they really liked was they were doing four days a week on this four on and four off rather than maybe six or, or five or whatever. And if you're, and an awful lot of guardy have, do have to live maybe 60 or 70 kilometres away from where they're working. You can, you know, there's the whole accommodation crisis and guardy aren't immune from that. They do have to, most of them do have to live an awful lot away. So your your your, your fuel bills or, or your petrol diesel bills are cut by 25%. And that's quite a significant uh, saving for anybody. And even things like, you know, they do spend more, it, it does mean more time with the family and everything. So most, what you would call the regular, so uniform guardy on, on the beach, shall we say, most of them would have been very happy with this roster. Now, there's other detective units and other non-core and, and that sort of stuff. Some of them wanted to go back to, to other ways, but most guardy you would speak to are very, very happy with the, the, the emergency roster. So you can see why the commissioner has said, right, as you said, he's done talking, so he's referred it to the WRC because it, it does seem, you know, it's an immovable object up against that force thing that there are really on a collision course over this. It has unfortunately now escalated and uh, escalated down at the conference where the AXI members voted. Uh, I don't want to call it in, in, a, uh, in a strike because uh, technically speaking, the guards cannot strike, but they are taking four days of action in May, June, May, June, July and August of this year. Um, and those days of action um, means that, that members will be effectively protesting. Um, and and it, that is going to cause a major, major issue for the guards. Now, there was a concern uh, prior to this action and the announcement this week that there may potentially be a quote unquote blue flu next week during the visit of uh, the US President Joe Biden. Um, but Axie assured that that wouldn't happen. Although they will uh, be, um, they will be working under protest. Uh, so effectively, uh, they're working, but they're not happy about it, and they're letting that known uh, be known. And they have said that in the future they can't guarantee that they would be policing another visit of another VIP. So they have marked the cards of the Garda Commissioner, and they've said that they're not happy, and that they have taken it to this uh, to this point. Uh, they feel and they hope that the commissioner might take their consent. 
concerns more seriously. Yeah, working on the protest. I'm glad to see AGSI has taken a leaf out of the book of every journalist in Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, I mean, I know jokes aside, it is, it is a very serious issue. And I was just going to ask you, Paul, I, and, and that was a very comprehensive uh, reporting on the issue of the Rosses, which is very important to Guardian. But what would you, how would you describe the, the general temperature or the general mood of all the members and delegates from AGSI at the conference this week? The mood was very low. I mean, look, it's no surprise at this to, to hear members say uh, that morale is low. They've been saying that for a number of years. Uh, but in this year in particular, it just felt uh, at another level. Uh, a lot of members are at their wits end and feel the guard of management are not, are not listening to their concerns at all. Um, uh, frustration, definitely, amongst uh, the members and the people that I spoke to down there. Um, but it just it remains to be seen now uh, whether management will take them seriously. Certainly the commissioner wasn't for turning. But lots of other, as you know, Mick, lots of other stories come out of AGSI uh, because you, you have an opportunity to doorstep uh, the Minister for Justice and the commissioner and ask them on a number of important issues. And so another topic which I think we should touch on is Daniel Kinahan uh, and, and indeed the Kinahans in general because this is something that continues to uh, make headlines. And uh, I'm, I decided to ask the question of the Garda Commissioner because not just to draft a headline but because we are now a year on next week actually uh, since the sanctions were imposed by the US Department of Treasury uh, on the Kinahan cartel and and just to remind people briefly that those sanctions meant that uh, properties and businesses associated with the Kinahans were very heavily sanctioned and it has effectively put them out of business in, in, in almost every sense. Now they're not completely out of business they obviously still have people uh, and that they're working with over there in the Middle East, but the Kinahan cartel and the commissioner did indicate this are a much more diminished force a year on uh, today than they were at this time last year. And th- those sanctions were announced in Dublin City Hall. Am I right? Oh, I, I was I was banned from it. I don't know. <laughs> you were banned from. <laughs> Yes, but I mean, it was incredible. I mean, uh, US authorities and members of the Drug Enforcement Association, the DEA, were all involved. And and as you know, the DEA, we've said they get their man when the DEA are involved. That is a serious escalation. The fact that the Americans are now actively investigating the Kinahans and they announced a $15 million reward for any information that would lead to the prosecution of Daniel Kinahan, uh, his father, Christy Kinahan, and his brother, Christy Jr. So, I think it was a reasonable question to ask the commissioner, where are we now year on? Can you update the public? Can you give us any uh, insight into how far the, has this investigation gone? And he said that there had been a, a significant um, progress in this investigation. And one such interesting development is that the guards have decided to send a permanent member of Angarda Shiakana uh, over to the Middle East, to the United Arab Emirates, in a permanent post. This will be a senior member of Angarda Shiakana uh, at a superintendent rank that will be going over to the United Arab Emirates. The new development, because this was reported uh, by yourself, Mick, I believe, last year, that this will be happening. The new development is that this is now finally happening in the summer of this year, and that was announced by the Garda Commissioner. So I decided to ask... that. He said this to me when I asked him the question, um, can you update us on the investigation? He said significant progress had been made. Uh, in particular in Europe, he said, uh, perhaps indicating, uh, calling back to the recent arrest of uh, Johnny Morrissey, for example, a very senior member of the Kinahan cartel uh, in Spain. Um, so the other development in relation to that, uh, look, it's important to put people on the record in relation to this. Obviously, Daniel Kinahan is under investigation and they do hope that he will be charged. But my question is, are you confident 
that Daniel Kinahan will face charges? And he said yes. So as far as the Garda at the most senior rank uh, is concerned, he believes that Daniel Kinahan will face charges. And he indicated that he doesn't have a preference as to where that will happen. Because we've spoke about this before, this is probably going to end up in an American court, given the DEA are involved. Um, and that's probably what's going to happen here. Well, as you said, you know, the DEA were involved. It was the City Hall where it was last year. And as you said, the DEA were there. But the American the, the American ambassador to the island was also there. And that's big news. So they're not messing about. So and we, I, don't, I actually remember it was maybe a, a, a few weeks after the, 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 the that press conference in the City Hall, the commissioner, we were speaking to the commissioner at Dublin Airport at the opening of the official guard station there. And he said at the time, you know, he really... He does believe there will be charts, and effectively, he said, again, you know, because we were asking about America, because at that stage the focus really was could he be charged in America? Could Kinnan be charged in America? And we got a sort of a positive response to that about you know, effectively, he's not fussed. And I, I think there is something coalescing here. I think because the Americans involved, I think it is more likely now that he will end up in America. But just what you were saying, I think. When he was talking about how it's degraded, it's really interesting because I think, you know, we're, maybe some investigations are very quick, wham, bam, and they get in very quickly. I think with something of this magnitude, it's almost like, a, you know, one of those big oil tankers turning in the sea. It takes a long time for it to turn. And maybe it does take around a year for the, the finances of the Canadians to be graded so much or the operation of the Canadians to be graded so much. So I thought that was interesting what he said. And also, I did note what you were saying about the Commissioner talking about Europe. I think there's one very significant aspect of that. Europol, which we know is the EU's policing agency, all the police forces are part of it. Last year, uh, the UAE sent an, an official ambassador or liaison officer to Europol and I think that's been very very significant and it's also very significant as you said it's a, a detective superintendent who's going to Dubai as a liaison officer there is a liaison network around the country and I we did break that they were sending one to Dubai last year but what's really significant most of those liaison officers are sergeants they're detective sergeants in liaison and protection which is a unit guard HQ the anomaly was in Colombia, there was a senior officer who was sent to Colombia last year. He was a detective inspector. Now, which is even more significant, it's a detective superintendent who is going to Dubai. So I think that shows the significance of Dubai and the political aspects. Because remember, it's superintendents and above are appointed by the cabinet. So that's a superintendent is a really, really significant rank. And I think there's high politics involved in this now. And I know that there are Irish diplomats and all over there. So... There are plenty of things working behind the scenes that we'll never know about, but I think it's all been choreographed and it's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, and do you think this is indicative of the Kennehans still being in Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates at least? Because, I mean, if you're going to send... I mean, I know we're kind of saying it's possible that moving around and that, but is it not indicative that the guards and, and certainly believe the UAE is still the spot to go? They haven't left. Yes, and no. The, the, the decision to send a liaison officer was made before last April. But yes. But look, they surely have intelligence uh, yeah, still. Look, I mean, I mean there, there were media reports that Kinnan had left Dubai and was traveling around Europe. Who knows, right? I, I remember I, a very senior fellow said to me shortly after that story appeared, they think he's in Dubai. And that's grand. And you and I have got sources who've told us they think he's in Dubai. But. I don't think he's been watched 24-7. Nobody's watched 24... People in Ireland aren't watched 24-7. I just don't think that... People might think it happens in the movies. It doesn't happen. Who knows? You know, we know about the African link. We know, I remember we did stories about Zimbabwe and all that sort of stuff about the importance of... Get, and who knows where, where Christy Senior is because he was, you know, he was heavily active in Hong Kong. He was heavily active, as I said, in Africa. 
maybe they're flat. We, we, we simply don't know. But look, you know, Dubai is obviously, and the UAE is obviously the focus of this. So it's, 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 I don't think they take an ad out in the Irish Times to say where they are. <laughs> and that, I mean, you know, yeah. that's really the issue. So the focus, look, I, I'm taking it that they're in that area. Are they there permanently? Are they moving around? I'm taking it that the guards believe they're there. Yeah, they, they must certainly have intelligence in order to still be ta- taking that uh, p- position there. But also, I can recall the guard commissioner saying um, this time last year, you can run, but you can't hide. And it seems it sounds like a cliche, but it's, I mean, the level of uh, transatlantic uh, support that the guards now have uh, is unprecedented. So, I mean, it's just another... Uh, nail in the coffin now for the Kinnans. Yes, there is. But there is one aspect about Kinnan that is different from most criminals. He can run and he can hide because we know, for example, that they have false passports. We know that they have significant assets. They can buy false false passports. If you know, if anybody can run and if anybody can hide, it's Kinnan. Interesting that you say that now. Oh, but it has definitely made it, it's definitely making it more difficult for them. I completely understand that. And if you were to ask me, I would believe yeah. that they were in Dubai. I've written about media yeah. reports saying that, and that's no problem because we hear everything. But somebody senior told me, and we've had our own sources saying so. And maybe my my view does change because it's it is chaotic and it is secretive. But I would believe the focus is Dubai, and there's a reason why the focus is in Dubai. Very good. And moving on to, I'm sure we'll be discussing Kinahan again. But uh, moving on to just another major story that came out of Agzi, um, the the Garda Commissioner announced that there is a major in uh, national. Uh, uh, operation investigation uh, into sexual assault, alleged sexual assaults in the defence forces. Uh, some historic, some more recent, and this is all coming off the back of a long-awaited report in, uh, into a bullying and abuse uh, in the Irish defence forces. Uh, and I, uh, the independent review group, um, which was chaired by Miss Justice Brona O'Hanlon, um, and. It was a quite a damning rec- report, and in summary, it basically found that the organisation barely tolerated women. And off the back of that, there have been allegations of abuse within the defence forces, and uh, people have come forward and told their stories and felt that incidents were not handled correctly. So the guards have now announced this major national operation, a special operation investigating uh, alleged abuse, as I said, within the defence forces. And some of the allegations go right back to the 1960s. Um, and we were just trying to get our head around this because the question was asked, you know, how many of the guards aware of uh, allegations to date? And the commissioner said there are 26. And we were just trying to get to the bottom of whether there are 26 it's just 26 brand new investigations. Um, it is a mix of new allegations and historic allegations. And they are going to review um, some cases that have maybe previously been investigated as well. So it is a huge um national operation and also a divisional operation within that as well um, so the guards are taking this extremely seriously yes and just to explain this uh, if i read the reports correctly it's been overseen or the operation has been run by the national protective services bureau now so they're the national sex crimes well they investigate other things but they're the national sex crimes unit effectively but there are things called divisional protective services units and they're in every guard division and they're the ones on the ground who deal with sex abuse, child sex abuse material, domestic violence. But the the, 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 the DPSB, the, the Bureau is the national one, and that's really interesting because it used to be known previously, its previous incarnation was Domestic Violence Sexual Assault Unit. And there was a unit within that unit, shall we say, which dealt with clerical sexual abuse. And I, I just think the parallels here are really, really interesting. 
And what you were saying about even them reviewing old cases, that's exactly what they did. There are experts in there. That's exactly what they did with clerical abuse. So they know the playbook. They know exactly what to do. So, you know, it's a very, very significant development for me that the National Protective Services Bureau are there because they really have expertise. It'll be interesting to see how that works out. But really, the, the guards have primacy because I've covered plenty of cases where, you know, guardi- uh, defence force personnel have been accused of criminality and it's the guards. We have one police force, it's a unity police force, and they're the top dogs. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, but it is interesting that the Protective Services Bureau are involved because they're the experts. Yeah, I'm certainly getting the indication that, I mean, they're hammering at the dam now that it's about to burst because this is a, a huge national scandal if they're investigating right back to the 1960s and it's interesting you bring up the church because it's it's a good analogy in that the defense forces would have been probably quite a secretive organization and a closed doors organization then you have um people sleeping in dorms together and in a kind of environment where perhaps there was a a level of secrecy for many years and so certainly get the impression that this is going to become an even bigger story than it already is because even the commissioner said he fully anticipates there to be many, many more allegations. I, I, I just think there will be parallels with the Catholic Church because the Defence Forces are a powerful organisation and so is the Catholic Church. And, you know, if it does go back to the 60s, I I, I can't see how it can just be re, re, re held to the mid-20s. I, it'll be multiples of that. I would be, I would be of the view, I think more people will come forward. But what's interesting there, not that, I mean, victims are victims, but women were only uh, admitted into the defence forces, I think it was late 70s or early 80s. So it shows men can be the victims of sexual abuse as well. That's interesting, yeah. We we don't know the full extent of these allegations yet, but that, I mean, um, that's pretty clear then that there are obviously allegations from men there as well. Outside of Agsy, anyway, Mick, what else was going on during the week? Because I was, uh, I suppose, boxed in. Um, now, that's a lot of stories that came out of one event. But So I wanted to talk about the, the, the Kerry Babies case because it's really fascinating. Obviously, everybody knows the background and the, the guardie from the Kerry division arrested a man and a woman late last week and they were held in suspicion of murder and they were subsequently released without charge and there's now going to be a file going to the Director of Public Prosecutions. And we do know that... DNA evidence samples were taken from those that man and woman. I spoke to their solicitor, Barry O'Connell, who said they were given voluntarily. This was at the start of the, the detention protest process. And I think there is an acceptance. Barry O'Connell, who's a fantastic solicitor, by the way, who said, he told me on the record that they were still waiting for it. He hasn't been informed of it. But I think if you speak, there, there'd be an acceptance that Gardy are satisfied that there has been a match on the DNA. So young baby John, who was stabbed to death, he was stabbed 28 times and found in Carasavine Beach in April 1984. And that kicked off the whole scandal of the Kerry Kerry babies in the way Joanne Hayes was treated. But there was a DNA sample from the baby at the time. But then in 2022, 2021, the remains of the baby were re-exhumed. And my understanding is that was to, you know, there obviously been advances in DNA. My understanding is that was that and they got a, a match. And I think there were Americans involved in it, maybe the FBI and specialists from Garda headquarters. So there is a match. I'd be pretty happy that there is a match. But the reason I want to talk about this, I spoke to Parag O'Connell, the family, the, the, the man and woman solicitor, a few days after the release. I think I spoke to him last, I spoke to him last Sunday. And he was 
I'm not going to say strident, but what I found really interesting was how strong he came out. Paul, how many solicitors have you and I approached to see if you would comment whenever one of their clients has been arrested? And it's usually doors are shut. Mr. O'Connell was extreme. Yeah, Mr. O'Connell was extremely open, and he said the arrest was unfair, the arrest was unjust. There's not a scintilla of evidence against the man or the woman. And as I said, there is going to be a file to TPP, and I know from experience files. Especially files like this, because it's very complicated, because it's nearly 40 years ago. They can take a long time. And he says he wants a quick response from the DPP, because he believes that will exonerate his clients. So, you know, he was very, very strong and very confident speaking to and me and other members of the media. And that, I, I thought that was just that was an indication that he certainly, and he said it, you know, he believes his clients are totally innocent. Now it's going to be... Up to the DPP, a file will be prepared for the DPP, the law officer in her office will examine the file and they will make a decision. But that, as I said, that could be months away. But I was just really struck by how strong Mr O'Connell came out with this statement because that's extremely rare. The, latest, the story that you're actually still actively working on as we speak is the, is the latest murder in the country down in the Limerick area. Yeah, it's important for us in Shattered Lives to mark every murder because we do deal with, you know, deaths and it's very important we, we just didn't want this to go by to go past now the lady hasn't been informally identified yet i understand she is romanian and there are difficulties trying to get in contact with the family or there there is it's a longer process than would be normal but i do anticipate that Gardy will release her details it could be later on today it could be saturday you know so very soon but what's interesting a 26 year old man has been arrested in northern ireland now, he's been arrested on suspicion of murder. And this is interesting because the crime didn't happen in Northern Ireland. It happened down here. But not a lot of people know that there is a facility, there is a legislation that allows someone to be arrested and charged and go on trial in the Republic if there's an offence committed in Northern Ireland and vice versa. I, I mean, I, I was doing some research into this. So that's why he's been arrested. He's not been arrested to be sent back to the Republic. He, you know, maybe extradited. You can't be extradited until a charge, by the way. But they are holding him and questioning him about a murder that happened in the Republic. So there is a, a, a legislation. And we know, for example, there was a real IRA murder just on the border in Donegal, Derry Donegal border, ah, maybe 10, 15 years ago. But it just happened on the northern side, on the southern side, on the northern side, sorry. But they were charged and processed in the Republic. And I also remember a lady called Georgina Eager, who was in Walkenstown, and I was in the mid nineties, maybe 2005. She was, uh, God love her, she was stabbed to death. And the killer went on the run to England. And he was caught in England. And he went on trial at the Old Bailey, and he was convicted at the Old Bailey. So there is legislation. Uh, and it, uh, now this is, that, that legislation is from the 1860s, but there was other legislation around 1976 because of the Northern Troubles that allowed more charges and questioning in the Republic for the North. So that man has been quelled in suspicion of murder. Now, I, I, I don't know what will happen, but I would anticipate if there is a charge, someone will be extradited back here. Interesting. Do we know anything at this stage about the circumstances surrounding this? About As you said, I know you're saying this, this woman hasn't been formally identified yet as we're speaking, but what can you tell us about the, the background to this? Well, we, we don't know, we'll be totally honest, but I, I do think that the, the killer went... Some were looking for sex and then something happened. Now we understand that the suspect, obviously he, the suspect was arrested in the north so that the guards and investigators do believe he left Limerick in a certain way. But we do know that a suspect had cuts in his hand and 
was seen with a bandage. So, look, it's very early days in the investigation. We do know, although she hasn't been named, she is a lady from Romania. My understanding is she's a mother of four uh, who are living in, in Romania. The children are living in Romania. And they're now, the guards are now through Interpol and Europol are now talking to the family and the, the name should be released. But there, I'd say there is more to come in, in relation to that investigation. Interesting. Well, we'll, 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 keep, we'll keep on that. And just one thing before we go, next week's going to be a big week and we might talk very briefly about Mr. Hutch. Yes, well, we'll be talking all things Hutch uh, very shortly, but uh, it is Jerry Hutch's 60th birthday there on Tuesday. And the following week, then, he will learn his fate uh, in this long-awaited verdict when he is on trial for the murder of David Byrne at the Regency Hotel. And we're going to talk about that in great detail next week. We're going to give uh, you, the listeners, anyone who hasn't followed our exhaustive coverage on the trial, we're going to do we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to approach it a little bit differently. We're going to try and keep it interesting for you and try to sum up what all of the evidence uh, is and the allegations against Jerry Hutch and indeed the two other men who are on trial as well. Um, so we hope uh, that you listen in and we'll be back in touch with you next week. Okay, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll talk soon.